Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. We uh, are on the first Sunday of Lent. And um, Lent, as you can see on the calendar, is the season that follows uh, Epiphany, where we've been for the last couple months. And if you don't know, Lent is a season of uh, 40 days that's really patterned after Jesus' 40 days that he spent in the wilderness. And so um, for centuries now, followers of Jesus have set aside the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday um, as a season of prayer and fasting and creating space to listen to uh, God and to receive his power and his presence. And so many of you were here on uh, Wednesday night for Ash Wednesday as we kind of kicked off the season of Lent together. And um, others of you I know uh, observe Lent in various ways, Um, and I think that's great. What I want to do this morning as we come to the scriptures is to invite us as a church family into this season together in a unique and focused way. Specifically, what would it look like for us to give ourselves to the practice of communion over the next six weeks? So we've been around Antioch, you know we have these six practices that we use to articulate what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the first one, depicted on the wall back there is this practice of communion. It's the word that we use to describe a life that's immersed in God. It's any time that we create space to pay attention to God, we're practicing communion. Jesus referred to this as abiding in him. And so this morning, I want to invite you to join us in devoting ourselves during the season of Lent over the next six weeks or so to a season of prayer. So um, here's what that looks like. During the six weeks of the six Sundays of Lent, we're going to be basing the teachings out of the book of Psalms. Um, The lectionary that we kind of use to uh, guide our time in Scripture each week, if you don't know, it has four readings for every Sunday. There's an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a psalm, and a gospel. And so back in Advent, we focused on the Old Testament readings. For Epiphany, we were in the gospel readings. And as we come into Lent, we're going to move into the psalms, which is fitting for this season. Because as you've heard me say before, Psalms is the only book of the Bible that's not meant to be read. It's meant to be prayed. So Psalms is a multi-dimensional book. It wears a lot of hats and has a lot of purposes. But mainly, it's recognized as the prayer book of the Bible. And for thousands of years, God's people have used the book of Psalms to help them practice a life of communion with God. Or in other words, to help them pray. And so in just a moment, we're going to open up to our psalm for the week, Psalm 91, and we're going to spend a few minutes there, and then we're going to use the rest of our time to talk about what these 40 days of prayer might look like 
and uh, I want to share some ideas and some resources with you. So, Psalm 91. Um, we're only going to do the first two verses this morning. I had all week and spent a lot of time studying this entire psalm and wrestling with all the profound questions that it asks and the claims that it makes. And uh, in the end, we only have time to do the first two verses. So um, you can wrestle with that on your own time. But here's what you need to know. Psalm 91 is a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, Traditionally, it was attributed to Moses. Um, More likely, it was written by David. We don't know exactly who or when or what the situation was when it was written, which is, I think, in some ways, maybe why so many have grasped onto this psalm, because it has a sense of being universally relevant and applicable. So, for example, at a traditional Jewish funeral, this psalm, Psalm 91, is read seven times. And that's just as the the casket bearers are carrying the casket to the grave. They take a couple steps, and then they pause, and somebody reads Psalm 91. And they do this seven times. Another example is that in the U.S. military, Psalm 91 is known as the soldier psalm. Ever since World War I, American soldiers, many of them, read this psalm every day that they're in a combat situation. So funerals, wars, this is a song that brings comfort to those who are grieving, to those who are afraid, and anybody facing any kind of trouble. A song of thanksgiving and comfort. So the first two verses again, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So let's take a moment and ask, how does the psalmist depict God here? What does this passage reveal to us about who God is and what God is like? In these opening lines, God is a shelter and a shade, a refuge and a fortress. So first, God's a shelter and a shade. Simply think about in winter, in cold, in rain, or in snow, when you need a shelter to come under. Or in the summer, when it's hot, when it's dry, when you need a shade to come under. God is a shelter and a shade. Now, again, this traditional idea that this psalm was written originally by Moses, it kind of comes out of the idea that as God's people had been wandering through the wilderness all those years, and then God provides them with the tabernacle, this giant tent that was a place of worship, that kind of as a way of, uh, uh, of celebrating this tabernacle, Moses writes, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a beautiful idea that God has provided this place where they could go not just to escape the elements, but to encounter his presence. And so in that sense, there's a very literal way in which we can read Psalm 91. That God's heart goes out to those in need of shelter which all of us here in Central Oregon know 
how big of a crisis so many of our neighbors are facing. Those who have lost jobs or lost homes over the last couple of years, for whatever reason, hundreds of families find themselves literally in need of shelter, literally in need of shade, literally in need of a roof over their head and protection from the cold. So this is why, as a church, we work closely with organizations like Shepherd's House. So many of you that are either on staff with Shepherd's House or volunteer your time to serve those folks and those families. This is a legit expression of the heart of God to provide shelter for those who need it. We also, as you know, are getting ready to use our church parking lot as a place to host three families who are living in their vehicles, who just need a safe space to park their their car for a few months. And so we know that God cares about those who are in literal need of shelter, and it's good and right for God's people to be about that work. We also know that all of us find ourselves in need of shelter and rest for our souls. So for thousands of years, both Jews and Christians have understood that God himself in this psalm is the one who is our shelter and shade. That we all have this longing to feel safe and to be secure, and the psalmist says that God is the one who is a shelter and a shade for his people. And then secondly, verse 2, the psalmist depicts God as a refuge and a fortress. Similar language, but a little bit of a different picture. This week, when I saw the word refuge in the text, my mind went immediately to Ukraine. And the millions of people, 1.6 million, I think, who have fled their homes this last week. What do we call these people? Refugees. Literally, those in need of refuge. People who need a place where they can go to be safe, where they don't have to fear for their lives. And it's been inspiring to watch nations all over the world open up their arms and welcome refugees. Whether they know it or not, This is an expression of the heart of God. And so again, just like the poor and homeless, God cares deeply about the refugees and calls his people to be those who are actively engaged in welcoming immigrants and strangers to the land. So in a literal sense, but also again, for thousands of years, both Jewish and Christian readers have understood that in this psalm, God himself is a refuge and a fortress for his people, that he himself is the one who provides for us, welcomes us in, and protects us. And so we have a psalm here that praises God because he's a shelter and shade, and also because he's a refuge and fortress, or in short, God is where we belong. God is where we belong. So if that's what it tells us about God, my next question then is, who is it that gets to experience this sense of being at home in him? Who is it that gets to be the recipient of God's presence and protection? 
Who is it that gets to enjoy life with this sense that I am safe in the place where I belong? See, just because all these things are true about God, it doesn't mean that automatically all of us get to experience it. So the truth is, I think most people, including Christians, spend a lot of time seeking shelter for our souls. Um, we won't spend time on them, but if you read the next 11 verses of the psalm, what he does here is basically go through a list of all the kinds of things that produce fear and anxiety in his life and in the life of his community. What are you afraid of? What are you worried about? This is basically a list of all the things that keep the psalmist up at night. And he lists, he lists all kinds of stuff. Diseases, plagues, predators, and pests. The fear of the dark. Enemy attacks, natural disasters, hunters' traps, snakes, lions, and so on. Like, this guy's afraid of everything, right? He's listed it all. I'm guessing he's probably an Enneagram 6, if that means anything to you. Like, he's not just worried about what's going wrong. He's worried about what could go wrong. And uh, he has a little bit of PTSD, pre-traumatic stress disorder. Um, he's afraid of everything, and some of us know exactly what that feels like. We all know what it is to feel insecure, to feel vulnerable, susceptible, whether it's physically, financially, relationally, whatever it is. Especially when it doesn't it just seem like bad things tend to pile on top of each other? And I don't mean this flippantly, but like, wouldn't it have been nice if Putin could have waited till COVID was over? before he starts the next war, right? It's just one thing on top of the next. And so again, our question is, if God is this shelter and shade, if he's this fortress and refuge, then who is it that gets to experience the joy and the peace of living under his protection and care? Well, look how the psalm starts again, back to verse one. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So who is it that gets to experience the sense of living under God's care? Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be someone who dwells in the shelter of God? Well, I think that's where we come back to this idea of communion of a life immersed in God. A way of living in this world where we're practicing God's presence, where we're creating space to pay attention to God, where we have rhythms of listening to God, enjoying his presence, sitting with him in prayer, a life of abiding with Christ, or I think you could argue a life of prayer. So when we pray, we are dwelling in the shelter of God. When we pray, we are trusting in him as our refuge and our fortress. When we pray, we are where we belong. And so I would sum up verses 1 and 2. Those who shelter in God's presence find their true home in him. And to shelter in him 
is to be someone who prays. So here's the trick. I want to be someone who prays. I'm guessing you do as well. I love the idea of being the kind of person that spends time every single day enjoying the presence of God, reading scripture, sitting with him, praying. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person that when you tell me something that's going on in your life and I say I'll be praying for you, I actually will and you believe me. I want to be the kind of person who prays and I'm guessing you do as well. In fact, in all my years as a pastor, pretty much everyone I've talked to about this has this sense that I wish I prayed more. I wish I had a deeper or a better life of prayer. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's like, yeah, I think I pray enough. (laughs) I'm good there. We all want more. But it's hard, isn't it? For whatever reason, I struggle to pray. I'm guessing you struggle to pray. I mean, for me, it's part of my job. (laughs) And I struggle to pray. I've had to come to admit that I need help learning how to pray. I want to live under God's shelter. But for whatever reason, I don't. And so I want to spend a few moments wrestling with this idea, especially as we move forward into this season of Lent, this season marked by prayer, and the very real struggle that there is in light of this amazing invitation that we have from God. One of the most encouraging places for me in the Gospels along these lines is in Luke chapter 11, where it says that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, which, by the way, is this picture that Jesus had set times and places that he prayed, as all uh, Hebrew people would have. Certain times and places, rhythms of prayer that he followed. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So here's what's encouraging to me about this. Jesus' disciples, his first disciples that are there with him in person, they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And we can only assume that the reason they're asking is because they, like us, struggle to pray. They're looking at their lives and going, I'm not satisfied. I don't feel like I'm praying enough or praying well enough or that my prayers are meaningful or I can't keep my my mind from wondering. I don't know if my prayers matter. I know I want to pray, but it's hard. So Lord, teach us to pray. And so we aren't alone in the struggle. And the disciples were right to ask Jesus to teach them, not just because that's what a Jewish rabbi would do for his disciples, is teach them to pray, but because all of us need to be taught how to pray. Now, depending on your kind of religious upbringing or what tradition of the Christian church um, your faith was formed in, that phrase will strike you in different ways. The fact that we need to be taught how to pray. 
Because a lot of us, I think, would have the idea that prayer is something that ought to come naturally to us. That prayer, if it's going to be real and meaningful and authentic, is something that should just kind of flow from us. Not something that you have to open a textbook or take a class to learn how to do. It's a strange idea that we should, that we need to learn how to pray. But the truth is, all of us already have learned how to pray in one way or another. You didn't come in this world knowing how to pray. You were taught how to pray. By the environment that your faith was formed in, your family, your church, whatever it is, all of us have learned how to pray in one way or another. It's been a couple years since I've shown you this, so I gotta bring it back. The generic prayer request generator. (laughs) So any of you that have spent much time, especially around the evangelical church, You know how this works in your small group or whatever it is. Here's how you form a prayer request. My obscure relatives, fill in the blank, acquaintances, fill in the blank, vehicle, pet, or body part, fill in the blank, is ill, broken, lost, troubled, on the lamb, failing, or verklempt. So, just pray that God would just really... Heal, deliver, help, release, shine his face on, reveal himself to, put a hedge of protection around it or the situation. Just pray that God would just really. (laughs) It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? And the reason it is is because it exposes that whether we like to admit it or not, we've been taught how to pray. We've been immersed in cultures or in churches that have taught us that there's certain words or phrases or tones that you use when you pray. So everybody has to learn how to pray. Think about it like learning how to speak. Babies can make noises, but they learn how to speak words, how to communicate from others. Bonhoeffer wrote about this uh, many years ago now. The phrase, learning to pray, he says, sounds strange to us. If the heart does not overflow and begin to pray by itself, we say, it will never learn to pray. But it's a dangerous error, surely very widespread among Christians, to think that the heart can pray by itself. He's writing in the 1940s. For then we confuse wishes, hopes, sighs, laments, rejoicings, all of which the heart can do by itself with prayer. Prayer does not mean simply to pour out one's heart. It means rather to find the way to God and speak with him, whether the heart is full or empty. No man can do that by himself. For that he needs Jesus Christ. So when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, what I would expect is that Jesus would just say, just talk to God. Just pour out your heart. Just tell him whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. Ask him for whatever you want. Just just talk to God. But that's actually not what Jesus says. 
When the disciples ask him to teach them to pray, to pray, here's what he does. He says, okay, when you pray, say this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The prayer we just prayed together. This is what Jewish rabbis did. They taught their disciples to pray by giving them prayers to pray. And the disciples were expected to pray those prayers repeatedly over and over until those prayers became their own. Now, for many of us, we struggle with the idea of praying prepackaged prayers. Like, it seems really ritualistic and inauthentic. That we feel like prayer should be more self-expressive, more personal, more freestyle, or we use the language of more spirit-led. And my question is, what do we think that the purpose of prayer is? Now, granted, there's all different kinds of prayer and forms of prayer and modes of prayer, but in the end, is the purpose of prayer to get stuff from God? Is it to get God to do what we think he ought to do? Is that why we pray? Apparently, for Jesus, prayer wasn't so much about self-expression as it was about spiritual formation. For Jesus, prayer is a practice that helps align our heart and mind with the heart and mind of God. Prayer is about being conformed to the image of Jesus, learning how to participate in the divine nature, learning how to relate to the Father of Jesus because he's now our Father as well. If prayer isn't primarily about self-expression, but it's about spiritual formation, then it makes sense that Jesus wouldn't say, just pour out your heart to God, but instead he says, okay, when you pray, say this. And so, ever since, followers of Jesus, the church, has prayed this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, Lord's Prayer isn't the only tool that we've been given for learning to pray. As I said before, the entire book of Psalms has functioned as the prayer book for God's people for 3,000 years. The Psalms aren't meant to be read, they're meant to be prayed. And we see this even in the life of Jesus himself. He was immersed in the Psalms. So much so that in his time of greatest pain in crisis, as he hung on the cross and prays, it's the Psalms that come out of his mouth. The word of God had become his word. And so the early church gave themselves to the prayers. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Not just prayer or praying, but the prayers. The prayers that had been passed down to them by those that had gone before them in the faith. The Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, as well as the other prayers that were being written at the time. And so, all that to say that my conviction 
is that the best way we can learn how to pray is by praying the prayers that we have received from the scriptures as well as from Christ's global and historic church. Obviously, I believe that there's room for us to freestyle, be led by the Spirit, pour out our hearts to God. I'm not saying none of that has its place, but I'm saying we learn how to pray by praying the words that God has given us. And so as we devote ourselves to a season of prayer for the next six weeks, I want to offer you a couple resources and ideas as we close. On uh, the seats when you came in, you found a little stack of prayer books. And um, we have a whole bunch more if, if you didn't ha happen to sit on a seat that has one. Um, what this is, is a liturgy for daily prayer that is designed to guide you in spending, I would say, about half an hour in prayer. Obviously, you can spend as much time as you'd like, but the idea is if I want to sit down and pray for half an hour, um, I need help <laughs> or else my mind is going to start to wander. And so what you do is you pray these prayers. Don't just read the words, pray the words. And there's some old prayers, there's some new prayers, there's some prayers from the scripture, there's some prayers that are passed down from the church. There's a psalm of the day, a prayer of the week that you can find in the back of the book. And there's space throughout the liturgy for you to freestyle. There's space for you to intercede on behalf of your loved ones, to pray for what's happening in the world, to pray for your own soul, your own needs. There's place for you to just sit and enjoy the presence of God. But all of that now finds its context within this greater liturgy of prayer. This is uh, <clears throat> inspired by a book I read by Brian Zahn several years ago, Water to Wine and Went to His Prayer School. I know some, several of you just got done doing that as well. Kind of adapted from that. And for me, over the last several years that I've had something like this as a resource, it has revolutionized my prayer life. And here's how. I pray. <laughs> I pray. I don't pray as much as I'd like or as long as I'd like or as well as I like, but when I want to sit down and pray, I have a way of doing that. And several times a week in my office, I grab this book and spend time with God. And so, take one of these. This is good from uh, now till Pentecost. So get them while they last. <laughs> And uh, try it out. Maybe you want to give yourself once a week or three times a week. Maybe you even want to do it every day for the next 40 days and see what happens. Because if it's formation, it requires repetition. You don't do one set of lifts and think that you're going to be in shape. <laughs> you go back to the gym over and over again. The second one is a smaller version of this that's called family prayers, and it follows the same basic flow, but it takes maybe about 10 minutes or so. And this is the prayer liturgy that our staff uses every week when we gather for our staff meeting. 
we walk through these prayers, these confessions, these psalms. There's a, it's a responsive kind of thing where you have a leader and then the rest of the group. And so we do this as a team. You may do this with your family or uh, with your small group or with your men's group or women's group or whatever. Um, you don't have to, but you should. <clears throat> Two more things real quick. Um, this month, we have a book of the month called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. <laughs> and uh, it's by Pete Gregg. Our staff got to hear Pete at a conference recently, and we're really inspired by his passion and vision for calling Christ's global church to pray. And so we have a handful of copies for sale out there. You can also, I'm sure, get an audiobook or, or whatever, find it online. Um, and the hope is that over the next month, a whole bunch of us would read this book together. And then if you're in a community group or a small group or a men's or women's group, maybe you would want to let this um, book kind of inform your conversations and your time together. And um, for anyone else who's interested, on April 3rd, there'll be essentially a book club or a discussion during the second gathering that day to, uh, to dive deep. It's a really helpful book. It wrestles with the honest questions, all the things that we struggle with, the question of why pray, unanswered prayers, and as big of an issue that is for so many of us. So maybe you'll want to pick up that book. And third, finally, I got a couple apps to recommend. <laughs> That's what the kids are doing these days, so I'm trying to stay with it. Um, the first one is Lexio 365. Um, this is by the 24-7 Prayer Folks, by Pete Gregg's team, and it has two prayer times each day, and here's what I love about this app, that you can either read it, it has a text version, or you can listen to it. It has an audio version, and every single day, morning and evening, there's about a five to ten minute prayer devotional of scripture, psalm, silence, reflection that it leads you through. And so for my morning commute, which is about eight minutes, the morning Lexio is perfect. I can put that on the car and kind of prayerfully make my way to the office. So I really recommend that. And the second one is called Daily Prayer. It's put out by an Anglican church in Colorado, I believe. And this has four guided prayer times every day, morning, midday, evening, and late evening. And this one's beautifully done where right on your phone, you can engage in these prayers and scripture readings. And if you do the whole thing, it'll take you through the entire book of Psalms every month. So Again, you don't have to use any of this stuff. If you've got a way of praying that works for you, great, run with it. But my hope is not just to stand up here and guilt you and say you guys should pray more, but to say God has given us an invitation, but he's also given us this story and this community and this gift of scripture and psalm designed to help teach us to pray. So Antioch, may we be a church that dwells in the shelter of God. May we be a people who trust in him as our refuge and our fortress. May we be a people who pray. And as we do, may we find our true home in God. Amen.